Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Remain standing for the reading of God's Word, and if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 21 today. And as you do so, we're in a bit of a transition period here in the the life of the church as we have concluded the Gospel of Mark, and Lord willing, it is our hope to go to 1 Peter as our new series. But as we do so, I want to take one week and do a transition-type sermon, and we do so from John chapter 21, and here we see the last picture of Jesus, that with Peter, the author of the book that we will soon look at. And so it is appropriate to see what it is that Peter experiences on those last and final days with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, and Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciple were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing, just as Jesus Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciples whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. And threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in the place. Fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And now our text for this morning. Now they had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Said to him, Tend my sheep. Said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to them the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you 
where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Thus the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Recently I had an article sent to me by a church member, and the article began this way, way that government officials in St. Paul, Minnesota, took precautions and did so by removing an Easter bunny display that was displayed inside the lobby of the city hall because the city said it wasn't their place to promote religion. There's several things that are disconcerting about this. First of all, that anyone anywhere would think that the Easter bunny is somehow religious. I'm not sure of any modern day religion that claims the Easter bunny. The second idea though, is the idea that anything that is potentially deemed as offensive needs to be removed. That we need to remove even the possibility of offense. And that we need to maintain as a culture a supposed neutrality. And I think that is troubling because offense then has become the new standard of what is culturally acceptable or not. If it's deemed non-offensive, well then it's permitted. But if it's deemed offensive, or even potentially offensive, then that's not acceptable. And you see the problem with that. The problem is this, that it's a very poor test, a very poor standard or measurement. It's not a measurement of what is right or wrong, but ultimately how one feels about it. It takes it out of the objective reality realm the realm of objective truth, and subjects it to subjective feelings. But the reality is this, that the truth usually always offends. In fact, you can't be a Christian without being offended, without being confronted. In fact, that is what the Word of God does It is the standard of truth and it calls us to that truth. And as a result, because we do live by that truth, we are cut by the word of God. That's why the author of Hebrews calls the word of truth the double-edged sword. And that is a fitting metaphor, is it not? God's word is offensive. It's true, but it is offensive. And you will be offended. In fact, you must. And yet the truth need not be watered down or catered to our subjective feelings. No, we need to be measured and yes, even judged by that truth. Now why do I say all of that? I say all of that because as we come to the end of the Gospel of John here, this last picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a very touching and indeed endearing scene between Jesus and Peter. But do not be mistaken. Jesus gets very personal with Peter. He confronts Peter. And yet he does so with extreme graciousness and love. And the Lord does the same with us and must. Like Peter, we need that restoration. We need to grasp that love and that forgiveness that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's only those that have that are profitable 
to the kingdom of God, to the service of Christ our Lord. And so we'll see that this morning in two points. First, restored by Christ, and second, reinstated by Christ. First, restored by Christ. And we read the context here. The context is important, is it not? That Jesus provides this miraculous catch. And yet at first the disciples do not recognize that it is Jesus. In fact, they do not recognize him until they have this large catch. When he tells them to throw their nets on the other side, they suddenly realize that it is Jesus. In fact, that is how they originally met the Lord. If you remember back that the disciples were first called to be disciples, to be fishers of men when Jesus performed the exact same miracle. We read about it in Luke chapter 5, that they had fished all night and they gained nothing. And then Jesus from the shore tells them to throw their nets on the other side. And as a result, they have this large and miraculous catch. And Jesus tells them to leave their nets and to follow him. And we have the exact same story here. Now at the end of the ministry of Jesus. And so in many ways these two miraculous events similar in many ways are bookends to the gospel. Jesus calling his disciples on the one hand and then calling them to go forth as apostles as he ascends into heaven. And so that is the scene that we see taking place here. But there is some reconciliation that needs to take take place here before Jesus leaves and before Peter gets that true call to be an apostle to preach the forgiveness and grace of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see Jesus and Peter sitting on the shore after this miraculous catch, eating breakfast together. And we know that Peter was overjoyed to see the risen Lord. In fact, so much so that he can't even wait for the boat to come in. He, he dives in, as it says in verse 7, and swims to shore. But in the same manner, in the back of Peter's mind, there must have been this gnawing sense of guilt. A burden that remains. That the relationship wasn't right. There was unsettled business, that there was an elephant in the room, so to speak. And as a result, he he, he felt unsettled. He felt that there was this looming issue, which there was. We've all been there, haven't we? Perhaps with your spouse or family member or someone close to you. Perhaps you've had an argument or a disagreement or even a difference. And perhaps you've tried to move on and have some type of interaction and some civil conversation, but you know that there is a wall that is still there. That things are just not right. That there is a divide, that there is a separation. There's not harmony, that you are at odds with one another. It's a terrible feeling, is it not? Especially with those that we love. And perhaps that wall of separation has gone even a little bit farther. That there has now also become a wall of separation between even you and the the Lord himself. That the relationship between you and Christ is hindered. That your time in prayer and study becomes 
somewhat non-existent. Instead of thinking about the Lord with joy and even coming to Him in worship, you almost have that sense of, of dread, having to be a little bit far off, that there is that divide, that separation. Perhaps it's because of a past sin. Or perhaps it's even because of a present sin. And that too is a burden. I think that's Peter at this moment. That this burden of sin was crushing. And do you remember what that sin was, do you not? And hours before the crucifixion of Christ, Peter outright denies the Lord. Not once, not twice, but three times. Saying that he never knew that man. That he does not know what they are talking about when asked, were you with Christ? We recognize you. You're one of his disciples. And he denies it. Denies it three times. Even calling curses down upon himself and swearing that he has nothing to do with that man. And this is the man, remember, that said that he would lay down his life for Jesus. That if everyone else denies you, I never will. That was his confidence. And yet, when the time comes, it's not Pilate, it's not the Sanhedrin, it's a little servant girl. That makes him recant and curse and swear. That's the Peter that is now sitting at breakfast with Jesus. It's personal, isn't it? Our relationship with the Lord is personal and our sin personally affects our relationships, especially with the Lord. Peter had not only denied his God, not only denied his Savior, but he had denied a close friend. And that can't be ignored or overlooked, and it must be dealt with. But who is going to initiate that reconciliation? Who is it that's going to bring it up? We see that it was the Lord who does so. And he does so with three questions. The same question three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And so those three denials by Peter correspond with the three questions of Jesus. In other words, Jesus took that sin very serious. It was a serious sin. And Jesus deals with it as sin. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't say to Peter, I know that night a few nights ago was a crazy night. You were under extreme pressure. You were in a tough spot. No worries. I understand it happens. Jesus says it was sin. And he confronts it as such. And the Lord does the same with us. Because we can so easily justify our sin, can we not? Tell us, and tell even others, why it's acceptable. We need to be reminded sin is sin, always. And we don't just sin in general. 
No, we sin specifically. We specifically sin against the Lord. David in Psalm 51, sister psalm of Psalm 32 that we read this morning. Remember after the sin of Bathsheba, he confesses in there, against you, you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. He calls his sin, sin, and even calls it evil. That every sin is evil. Every sin is a denial of the Lord. It's a denial of our Savior. It's even a denial of a close friend. And so there is no difference between our sin and that of Peter. And Peter was grieved by that question. Jesus would have to ask that question three times. And not only do I think he was grieved at that question, but he was grieved at what Jesus calls him. Did you notice that? He doesn't call him Peter, does he? Remember, Jesus changed his name. And said, you'll no longer be called Simon, you'll be called Peter, because upon this rock, my church will be built. Upon your confession, upon your preaching of the good news of the gospel, it's going to be upon that confession that you're going to establish the church, my church. And therefore, I'm going to call your name Peter, the rock. But notice here, he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. And no doubt, Peter wanted to say, no, no, my, my, my name is Peter. Remember, you, you changed it. I'm the rock. No, not in this moment. Simply Simon. Old Simon. Fisherman Simon. That's what he was doing, wasn't he? He was out fishing when Jesus came and appeared. Probably contemplating going back to his own life, his his old profession. Because he perhaps thought, "I, I can't be a disciple. I can't be an apostle. I can't be called by God. Not I. Not after what I have done. That's the Peter that's sitting there that morning. And quite frankly, we need to sit ourselves right next to Peter. Dejected, separated, set apart by our sin. Be it past or be it present. Because there's too much of the old person that still remains in us. The old man, the old Simon in us. It's still there, is it not? Oftentimes, there's seemingly not much hope at all. You have those questions. Have I really changed? Am I really a new creature in Christ? When will I ever get it right? Or am I only a failure? What is it that you do in those moments? Well, in those moments, we need to come to Christ. That's not where we want to go. We want to flee. We want to stay in darkness. We want to wallow in self-pity. But we need to come to Christ. And even more amazing, what we see in this passage is that Christ comes to us. As he does with Peter, it's Jesus that invites him to come and have breakfast. To have table fellowship with him. And then when he speaks, he 
He does not do so with lecturing or with scolding or a look of disdain or disgust. No, he has one question three times. And in the midst of that, you see the unmerited forgiveness of Christ. It's never mentioned in this passage, but it's there, is it not? That forgiveness that only Christ can give. And that forgiveness is made possible because of what we celebrated two weeks ago. That Jesus Christ was crucified, died and buried, but rose again. And that reality is not to just be celebrated annually. It's not just to be remembered once a year. No, that gospel is to be remembered daily. To be reminded often of the forgiveness and grace of God. It's not a cheap forgiveness. It's not a cheap grace. It costs the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of Man, His very life. But through it, there is forgiveness. Can you imagine what Peter would have done if Jesus never rose from the dead? He would have never had this opportunity. He would have never came face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, came face to face with dealing with his sin, and at the same time come face to face with the forgiveness and mercy of Christ. No, he would have had just despair all of his life. Left in his sins. No assurance, no hope, just that wait. And he would have just remained old Simon. Fisherman Simon. Dying in his sins, only to face the judgment of God. And again, that is true of us. What if, what would we do if the Lord Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead? We wouldn't be coming to a risen Lord. We wouldn't be able to come for mercy or for hope or for forgiveness. No, we'd have no hope, we'd have no future. We'd only have the burden of sin. But the truth, the glorious truth of God is that the Lord is not dead. He is alive. And he comes to us, not in condemnation or judgment, but with the offer of forgiveness and grace and cleansing. And that makes all the difference, does it not? What freedom, what healing there is. And do you understand that? Do, does that impact you in a, in a personal way? That is my sin, as the hymn writer says, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's grace. That's forgiveness. That is mercy. That is what Peter received on that day. And that is what we receive when we come to Christ. With our sins, Peter is restored, and so are we. Second, we see Peter reinstated by Christ. This was Jesus reclaiming Peter. Seemingly, Peter had, had gone off, like I said, out there fishing. Out there fishing all night, and in fact, the Lord was not allowing him to have success. They had had no fish. Until the Lord says, cast your nets on the other side. It was just a a, a little simple reminder 
to Peter that without me, you can do nothing. You can't even go about your own life in a good way. But Peter was not to be a fisherman of fish. He was to be a fisherman of men. And he was to go out and preach and proclaim the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and therefore, Jesus needs to remind him of those things. He needs to reorient his priorities. And, and, and I think we see that emphasis here. What is most important? What cannot be missed? It's that question three times. It's very telling of what is important to the Lord. Not only for Peter, but for you and me as well. In essence, Jesus is saying to, to Peter, it's, it's not your orthodox teaching. It's not your savvy apologetics. It's not your great personality. It's not your effective and persuasive speeches that's going to build the church. All important but all secondary to that which is primary. What is primary is love for me. Love for Christ. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? J.C. Ryle says it's not knowledge, orthodoxy, correct views, a regular use of the forms, a respectable moral life, All these things do not make a true Christian. There must be personal feeling, a personal love for Christ. That's a good reminder for us, is it not? Especially as Reformed believers. That love truth, that love theology. We can be big head people and that is good. But it also must correspond with a big heart. A heart that responds for love towards God. As Paul says, if we have not love, we are a resounding gong, a clanging symbol. And so Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? So simple and yet so easily missed. And notice Peter's answer. Three times asked, three times gives the same answer, but with added emphasis. And we see here with Peter a man that is humbled. He doesn't appeal to his zeal. He doesn't appeal to his record. He doesn't appeal to his godly living. He doesn't boast that his love is greater than anybody else. In this moment, he doesn't say, if all of them fail, I will not fail at this. No, he can't even say that. Notice what he appeals to. He appeals to the knowledge of the Lord. Verse 15, you know, O Lord, that I love you. Verse 16, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 17, he, he, he appeals even here to the omniscience of the Lord. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know the genuineness of my love. You also know my shortcomings, my sins, and my faults. There is nothing covered. There is nothing hidden in your sight. I can fool others. I cannot fool you, O oh God. 
And so you know. And the Lord does know, does he not? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. And with that knowledge, with that knowing comes love. In the Bible, you cannot separate knowing and loving. To know is to love. To love is to know. And so our love, as we even respond like Peter does, Oh Lord, you know that I love you. Our love, even that statement is rooted in the knowledge and love of God in the promises of God. That we love because God first loved us. That God so loved the world that He sent His Son. That the Son so loved us that He was willing to be sent. That the Spirit so loves us now that He has applied that work of salvation to us and has made us alive. And so even our statement of love is because of God's love for us. Only because God loved us can we know, personally know, intimately know God. And therefore, return love to Christ. You know, Lord, that I love you. And I love you because you first loved me. And my love ebbs and flows. It's like the sea. But your love, O Lord, is constant. And it's in that love that we can be secure. It's so simple, yet so utterly profound. There's really no greater question that we can ask than this. Do you love me? Do you love me? I serve on a credentials committee of our presbytery as we examine men as they come to be pastors of churches in our presbytery, many of which are fresh out of seminary, having completed their training. And as they go out into ministry, they are asked, as you can imagine, a a thousand and one questions. There's probably no greater question that can be asked than this. Well, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love Christ? Yes, you got your theology correct. You got your, your T's crossed and your I's dotted. But is it all rooted in love for Christ? And the same is asked of each one of us this morning. There is nothing greater. If you can boil the Christian life down to its very essence, to its very core, here it is, love for Christ. And so can each and every one of you this morning say, yes, Lord, I love you. Not perfectly, not as I ought. Because there's never enough love in the world to repay you for what you have done for me. But you told me that he who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. I love you much because I have been forgiven much. There is much forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you know everything, O Lord. You know that I love you. And then it is out of that love that we are to love others and to minister. And we see that here as 
Peter replies every time Jesus responds with, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And that could be a whole other sermon unto itself. But suffice it to say this morning, what is it that he is to feed the sheep with? What is it that he is to tend to when he goes out to tend the lambs? Well, he's to feed them and tend to them with the forgiveness, grace, and love that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The very things that he himself has received. In other words, he is to give them the gospel. The very gospel that he has received. Then you're a profitable servant. Then you'll be able to feed. Then you'll be able to tend my sheep. But Peter needs to learn that one last time. And that is why I'm so excited to to go into 1 Peter. Because Peter there is writing about the lessons that he has learned personally. That he passes on to the church. Of the mercy, of the love, of the forgiveness of Christ. That he ministers with the gospel. But it's here that the gospel comes home for Peter. It's personally applied to him and to us as well. Conclude with this. John 21 is a a postscript in the gospel of John. It's It's an epilogue. It would seem that John should have ended at verse 30 of chapter 20 when he says all these things have been written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's a wonderful way to conclude, is it not? The purpose and the reason for why he's written this entire thing. He should have put a period there and closed it up. But no, we have chapter 21. Why did he do that? Well, chapter 21, I think, gives us the rest of the story. Now, John 21 is a realistic picture of the Christian life. We, we might come to the end of the gospel and see this triumphal resurrection of Christ and might think that the, the Christian life is all about triumph, about victory after victory. Now, chapter 21 demonstrates to us how that victory is applied, how that resurrection is applied, how that gospel comes home to us. And it comes home in times of defeat, in times of failure, in times of sin. In fact, this passage that we just read ends with how Peter's going to die, and it's not a very pretty picture. He's going to be dressed and carried to a place he does not want to go. But I think John wrote this last picture here. To give us a a sense of what the Christian life is all about. Because we can replace the situation, we can replace the circumstance, and I think Peter here is interchangeable with any one of us. But the one thing that is always the same, the one thing that is constant is the Lord. And the Lord does the same with us as he does with Peter. He confronts us in our sin. With a, with a strong confrontation. That we are offended, that we are hurt, that we're even grieved as Peter was grieved here. But the Lord Jesus Christ also comes with the same 
strong, if not more so, strength of forgiveness and mercy to us. That he restores us and restores us in the midst of failures and restores us in the midst of sin and again calls us to follow him even as he ends this passage to Peter. Follow me. You haven't utterly failed. You have fallen short. But your failures have not disqualified you. Continue to follow me. Be my disciple. Go where I leave. And so I don't know where you're at this day. I don't know how you come to this place. All may be right in your world. All may be terribly wrong. But in either case, come to Christ. As Christ comes to you. In him, find forgiveness. In him, find grace and love. And then when he asks, do you love me? Respond as Peter does. You know, Lord. You know all things. You know that I love you. When he says to you, follow me, respond with, yes, Lord, I will follow. When he says, feed my sheep, tend to my lambs, say, I will, Lord, only with the grace and strength that you provide. Chapter 21 is is a summary of the Christian life. To love, serve, and to follow him. It summarizes it. I will conclude, I promise, with this. One of, my, one of my latest favorite quotes comes from Winston Churchill. And he says this, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. But it's the courage to continue that counts. And that is true, but it's especially true in the Lord. Our success is because of the love of the Lord. Our failures are not final because of the grace of the Lord. And our courage to continue is only because of the strength and grace that the Lord would provide to us. That he provides to you this day. And again, calls us to love and serve and follow him. In the light of who he is, how can we do any other? We serve a good Good Lord, loving and kind, more loving and kind than we deserve or we can even imagine. Let's go to him now. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and love and forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for this restoration that we see with Peter. And Lord, we know that you offer that same restoration to us. May we readily receive it. Not because we deserve it, O oh Lord, far from it, but only because you are gracious and good and have loved us with an everlasting love, a love that was so great that it sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sins and rise again. And it's in that death and it's in that hope that we have hope, O oh Lord, a hope to a new life and a new purpose. And may we live it out this day, this week, and as many days as you give. And Lord, even for all eternity, we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.